In the past few months, your two podcast hosts have confronted the deaths of people close to us. Now, millions of Christians across the world have just observed Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Today, we reflect on how Jesus' resurrection and similar reflections in the fantastic stories we love help us prepare for times of separation and suffering. These also help us long for the eternal day when our Creator will unite all things under His reign and will finally make all things new. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond when we apply the wonders, beauties, truths, virtues, every good thing in these stories and beware of idols in the real world that Jesus Christ has called us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, back from a necessary hiatus. I publish lorehaven.com, and I am also the co-author of a non-fiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell, but you can call me Zach. This is episode 57, How Do Stories Help Us Imagine Suffering and the Hope of the Resurrection? And this is our fourth part of our epic resurrection series that we actually started last year. So it's fun to kind of revisit this around the same time of Easter. And Stephen, it's great to have you back. Resurrection is a uh, is a doctrine that defines anyone who claims to be a biblical gospel Christian. Zach, it's great to be back. Uh, resurrection has a particularly poignant meaning for me uh, this resurrection or Easter season. Really appreciate you handling the podcast while I was gone. Uh, those couple of episodes were really fun and a, a welcome respite to listen to as a pure fan uh, while I was absent the studio. Yeah, as I'd hoped, uh, we we do get to pick up on that epic resurrection series we started last year. It was three parts we did in uh, the year 2020, first year of uh, Fantastical Truth. Uh, that was more of a survey of the biblical ideas of resurrection and how they compare with some uh, myths, some memes about the afterlife uh, that Christians have absorbed over the centuries. And who knows, maybe next year uh, we'll uh, we'll revisit some of those ideas. But this year, it seems especially necessary, at least for me, and I think uh, for you as well, to deal some with the reasons I was away, uh, but also just to, to revisit the hope of resurrection. But also, I mean, folks, big disclaimer here, this is going to be a sadder episode. It's going to be a little bit heavier here. I'm trying to keep it just as personal as possible uh, while recognizing you know, the, the limits of sharing all these things about death and suffering and grief and the hope of resurrection all at once. But we just had a Good Friday as, as we're recording this. Uh, we had a Good Friday service uh, yesterday at my church. It was so great to see everybody again, uh, by the way, because I had not even been to church in, I think, a month. I mean, it was just week to week to week. Something kept happening on the weekends and not always something sad and grievous, but just a lot of events uh, started piling one after the other. But during that Good Friday service, it just, it affected me more uh, than I thought it would. Uh, just the thought of Christ dying on the cross, like really dying, you know, breathing his last and doing that completely voluntarily like he did not have to do this and it's it's horrifying enough for a person to die you know a person who is in his mid-30s possibly but this is jesus christ the son of god he's eternal he's existed before time began he's the second person of the trinity he is god that should not have had to happen to him because he's the creator of all things and and yet it did and 
uh, just some of those ideas I, I thought it'd be great to explore today with maybe a little bit more emphasis on the, uh, the grief and suffering side of this issue. And then secondarily, of course, uh, emphasis on the hope of resurrection that we get from Scripture and that we see reflected in some of the best fantastical stories we enjoy. You know, so my own background, I grew up going to church every week with my mom and then with my grandparents when we'd visit them. And I'm very thankful for that. But it wasn't until I was 16 that I really understood, number one, what crucifixion meant. I somehow missed that. Not until this uh, Young Life camp I was at when I was 16, when I really understood just the details of the crucifixion. And it kind of shocked me to learn all that. I think we watched some kind of video. This was before Passion of the Christ. But I had always sort of known that Jesus' death was unjust. Like, it's Jesus. Like, he shouldn't have died, like you said. He's not just any old 33-year-old guy. He is the only perfect man that's ever lived. So I always had a sense that it was unjust that he died. But what really shocked me was, again, to learn for the, for the first time, or at least to understand it for the first time, is that he died that way on purpose. Like he chose to die that way. Naomi loves this verse where it says, and then Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And she loves that verse because Jesus knew what he was getting into and he knew how it was going to end. I just love all those passages, Stephen, where, where Jesus says, you know, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're shocked. And side note, he was talking about his body, but they did not understand this until after the resurrection. Well, how could you? We like to look back at the first century. People were like, oh, they're so, you know, superstitious or whatever. But no, they absolutely understood that people die and that's it. No one comes back. Zero. Well, they're more acquainted with death than even we are. We have a whole series of cottage industries to soften the blow of death uh, from, you know, the funeral homes and, you know, a bunch of music. We have cliches. We have greeting cards. We have flowers you can send. And then, of course, as soon as someone dies, all of the professionals come in and handle those things. And we're not as acquainted with it. Like even animal death, all of that happens off in a factory somewhere. And then, boom, we get chicken nuggets at the drive-thru. All of that is, is the result of some kind of death. And, and yet first century Jews knew about this reality a whole lot more than we do. Well, just to think that crucifixion was a public event. You know, nowadays we, we have the death penalty, right? But it's, it's a lethal injection or whatever. It's in a closed room. It's not broadcast on television. We don't live in the Hunger Games or anything like that. We, we try to give dignity in death. You know, that's always the big word that's used. So that there is nothing today like they faced back then where it, it was just in your face and how slow and painful and awful it was when people are crucified. But also, yeah, first century, you didn't live as long. You know, you, you didn't have the lifespan that we have now. They, they didn't have tetanus shots. So you get you get, you get tetanus and that's it, among many other things that you could die from. Yeah, my, I think by now, uh, all of my grandparents have, have died like one after the other uh, over the years. So I've been there for some of that. And I remember you know, grief and funerals and all of that. Uh, but it does hit me closer to home because in March, uh, my, my dad had been struggling with an illness for quite some time. And then uh, he ended up uh, dying as we record this uh, just a just a few weeks ago we had the funeral uh, a couple of saturdays ago 
it was a real funeral, you know, with real people attending. And for that, I'm very grateful. I was, I was a bit concerned there for a while that on top of everything else, given pandemic restrictions, no. we'd have to have a zoom funeral or something, which would just be ridiculous. It just seems to disrespect a person, you know, disrespect my dad, you know, and uh, all of that does hit me. I mean, that that's a big reason, of course, why I was away, you know, that's uh, my, my folks are from, uh, from Kentucky. So, it's a little bit of work uh, to get up there, but uh, CDC, I'm sorry, but full disclosure, I have been traveling. I have taken maybe a dozen flights since November, always taking precautions, masking up, all of those things, but I haven't had the vaccine and yet I've been traveling. Uh, one thing I've discovered in all of this, by the way, is that it can be very easy to try to turn grief into anger or try to distract oneself from grief with anger and actually that's made me see anew a lot of the conflicts that people get into, uh, whether it's over politics or religion or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying it's all explained by grief, but how much of that anger is is a, a self-distraction effort uh, because there's that sense of lingering or unresolved grief uh, that we, we just don't know how to deal with, uh, either because we don't have a biblical worldview and it seems completely incongruous that in a world where death is, for all we know, moral, uh, we feel repulsed by it. We feel like it shouldn't be here. Uh, or maybe we do have a biblical worldview, and yet it's still hard. It's still really hard to get through grief. Even if you know the truth of the resurrection, there can be those little flares of doubt, little flares of doubt that we've all just been fooling ourselves, and Santa Claus wasn't real all this time. And oh, by the way, Zach, that doubt is sinful. <laughs> I think it's necessary uh, as a necessary part of being human, but contrary to a, a, a very, uh, I think, well-intended uh, Christianity Today web article, doubt is sinful. And that is something that God has to, has to help us get through. Uh, the psalmists doubted, but uh, at least in at least one area, the suggestion has been made that Jesus Christ had some form of doubt that he ultimately had to get over as part of his being human. Um, I think that's very careless to say that. And as someone who's struggled with doubt, just as part of the grief journey, that is absolutely something we need to heal from just as much as we need to heal from the grief. A little personal update for me, right at Christmas, our good friends that we've known for 20 years, uh, Mike and Jenny contracted COVID within about a week. Jenny got over it. Mike, unfortunately, did not. So on January 1st, he uh, was taken to a hospital. A few days later, he was taken to another hospital. And the, the treatments just kept escalating. And this went on for uh, about two months. Jenny is just an amazing woman of God. Chronicled the whole journey, good, bad, and ugly. Uh, and unfortunately, Mike didn't make it. And then we had his service in March. Um, Naomi and I have known both of them, like I said, for gosh, almost half of our lives. Wow. So my, I went to the same uh, university as them and we've worked together. We've done projects together. They were not that many years older than us. And so, yeah, this was the first death to COVID that I've known, like, that's been a friend. Uh, obviously we've, we've all seen the numbers and everything like that, but it, it kind of doesn't really hit home until you know someone. So we've been going through that a lot in our family. We've talked a lot about the topic of death and resurrection. And so I'm not glad for what we went through, 
but I'm glad for the conversations we've been able to have with our kids. And I'm really taken aback by this verse, Stephen, where Solomon says, it is better to go into the house of mourning rather than a house of feasting. Right. And why is that? You know, why is it better to go to a house of mourning? It's like, well, this is the destiny of every man. And so we, we have to take note of it and we have to face it because we try to avoid the topic of death as much as possible. It's not good that someone is gone, but it is good for us to consider our own destiny uh, so that we are prepared. Yeah, when you mention that, I'm reminded of the the profundity of grief in Scripture. Like the Old Testament uh, saints, of course, all they had all these rituals for death. You know, you see the imagery constantly throughout Scripture. He would he would tear his garments. He would go into mourning. There was a whole procedure for it, and I think it's good that we have those procedures. And so for me, it almost felt very human in the broken sense of just connecting in a more intimate way with those rituals that people have built up around mourning and all of that. It's not something I wanted, but it still felt deeply human. Like I said, in in the broken way, it's not how God has ultimately meant us to live. We, we were made to live as the song says, uh, but sin and corruption entered the world, uh, death, suffering, those things do not belong here. And I must say, it was not only the biblical hope of the resurrection and the allowance for grief in uh, in the gospel narrative, but also a lot of fantastic stories that helped me get through it, like different music, you know, soundtracks from films that capture that sense of bittersweet longing. It honestly helped that we were getting uh, literally in the week that it happened. Uh, we were getting, I think, daily teasers for uh, the the new uh, Snyder version of Justice League that released uh, on uh, March the 18th. There's so many themes, even in that film, which I've obviously been looking forward to for several years now. So many themes of of death and rebirth. I mean, the whole the whole story is about rebirth, and uh, there's a rather significant resurrection in there as well, where where a hero comes back. So I'll get into that a little bit later, but. So it's gotten a little heavy in here of necessity for such a weighty theme, but we are going to break for a brief sponsored segment, uh, mostly inspired by the fact that uh, this past weekend, as we record, I was actually able to go to a real event. That is correct. Uh, Lorehaven was at the Great Homeschool Conventions in St. Charles, Missouri, which is close to St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, we were once again joining our friends with the Realm Makers Bookstore uh, to show off some of the back issues of Lorehaven when we were still doing the print issues up through spring 2020 issue. Uh, we also had copies of uh, my book uh, co-authored with Ted Turneau and Dr. Jared Moore called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. It was wonderful to be able to meet all of these families who, like us, were kind of emerging uh, like groundhogs, uh, blinking in the uh, late winter light, uh, taking a gander around the convention hall and realizing, wow, we can still do this, huh? There's still lingering concerns over the pandemic, but it's not like there's radiation in the air. We can wear masks. Uh, some people didn't, but it won't go there necessarily. It did really help just to be able to get out and share books and talk with people, meet families. I love meeting the parents, the teenagers, the kids, uh, they love uh, the books that Realm Makers Bookstore offers, which is all Christian authors, uh, fantasy, sci-fi, and beyond. 
uh, including, of course, one nonfiction book about fiction. You don't have to go to an event like that to get this book, uh, which uh, applies a gospel perspective to the definitions of popular culture. What is it for in God's world? And then we take case studies through the various age levels to try to understand how we can engage the graces and the idols of these stories as part of our gospel mission of parenting and families and the church. You can get that book from Amazon. It's from New Growth Press, our publisher for the Pop Culture Parent. Uh, you can actually find links to that at lorehaven.com. Just go over to the Beyond tab, which currently is all the way to the right side of your screen on the desktop version, and you can get more information about the Pop Culture Parent. While you're at lorehaven.com, of course, uh, not only uh, get that book, but you can subscribe to Lorehaven, get updates every time we post new podcast episodes or new articles or any of those new book reviews on Fridays. And you can join this mission to find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. Let's talk about this first part. How does scripture shape our view of suffering and resurrection? Where do we find answers and comfort and guidance from the Bible? Well, my thought there is, uh, first off, this is part four of the series. So a lot of that material would have been covered in parts one through three that we released back in the spring of 2020. But I thought it was important to give at least a brief recap of this content, uh, mainly because we'll focus so much on man-made stories in this episode. And our temptation would be to go to other stories about death and suffering and even resurrection and try to find hope in those stories alone. Uh, be staring at the the mirror of this light uh, rather than going directly to the source. Uh, we certainly cannot do that. Uh, God is the ultimate author of this reality. He defines these terms. He defines the reasons why death is an invader. He defines the reasons why suffering doesn't belong here, but is necessary for us to become like him. And he alone defines what resurrection means. It's not resuscitation. Uh, it's not the hope of participating in the great human drama. Uh, it's not some grand soliloquy about the, uh, the finitude of life and how it's just part of our natural course of human development and all the sorts of things you get from the more humanistic side of Star Trek. These days, it does seem, though, that people are kind of secretly swapping out other stories, other imaginations to try to explain death and suffering. Uh, they are turning to these rather than to God's true story that defines and explains these terms. I think I mentioned this earlier, but uh, I've noticed more and more, I think even before uh, this, uh, this brief hit me more directly uh, back in March, I think that the fear of suffering and death uh, gets disguised a lot. I think that people have this, uh, this haunting of their own mortality and the fact that there is suffering and death all around us. And I think people may be don't want to deal with that. I think we instead would prefer to deal with something we think is more easily addressed over our social media or in our politics. So instead of mortality, we call that poverty. And then we act like a government program can deal with that. Or instead of uh, the, the slow creeping sense of doom that death will catch up to us eventually, we say that our chief foe is the government. And we need to come up with some kind of a freedom movement to resist authoritarianism. I think all those are real risks that we do need to deal with one way or another. But I think our chief foe is, is death. It is the last enemy to be destroyed, as the Apostle Paul says. And it just occurred to me, and it, I guess this has been 
reoccurring to me over the last year or so. Uh, I think even the fear of coronavirus or uh, authoritarian measures to uh, combat coronavirus, like even those fears, I think, can be a fake distraction that people try on themselves. Like, guys, coronavirus is real. It's serious. As you were mentioning earlier, Zach, it, it, it can take the lives of people we love who are close to us. That wasn't the case with my dad. You know, there was another illness, but it is a real threat. You know, no matter how low the stats are, you know, they should be zero, we suspect deep down in ourselves. But I think coronavirus is, is for some people, just a mask over general all-purpose death. There are many other ways to die or to die slowly than coronavirus. And it just occurred to me that we need to reject all of those fake stories, all of those imaginations we have that help distract ourselves from the actual threat of death and focus on the far worse threat, which is sin and suffering and death, all defined by God as part of the gospel. We know that death entered the world, as you were saying earlier, Zach, through sin. It was Adam and Eve's choice in the garden to rebel against God, to reject his authority. They stole the forbidden fruit. They brought death, human death, real death and suffering into the world. And it's only through Christ's death voluntary on the cross and his resurrection uh, that we have any hope of escaping that death and living eternally, not just uh, escaping a world of death, leaving all of that behind to go up to heaven, but then also to reign forever as kings and queens under King Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. So the first thing that I went through was when we had Randy Ingermanson on the podcast uh, last May, and he talked about how you know, he's, he's getting on in years. And so he, he's got some, uh, some books he still wants to write and he figures I better get these done now because coronavirus could take me. And man, that stuck with me. I mean, again, we're here almost a year later and I'm still thinking about that, that he had that perspective of Ecclesiastes seven, you know, this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Like he looked at his life and looked at the world and was like, you know what? This may be my last, uh, my last year on earth. I better make it count. And I thought, wow, that is such a mature and sobering perspective. You're right in that I too often don't want to go there. And so I'll go to one of two extremes in two directions. So one extreme, I remember going to a lot in the beginning of this, you know, since our last uh, Epic Resurrection series was, oh, it's going to be over this weekend. Or, hey, this 90-year-old guy coronavirus, or I start to get wrapped up in these other stories of, of people that have gotten through it, or I get wrapped up in the, the other anecdotes of, of, you know, a healthy 30 year old that died or a, a mom, like a single mom that died. Or I look at the, um, the stories of people who've had bad reactions from the vaccine. I'll just say it. That's not a popular topic to talk about. Because uh, we don't want to push any vaccine hesitancy, and and I don't. I got the vaccine. I I'm for the vaccine, but it's very easy for me to get caught up in the anecdotes and think these anecdotes, these stories represent everyone's story, and this is going to be my story. And you're so right, Stephen, in that we are always putting ourselves in a story. And so the reason we talk about fiction is because it helps us kind of see that a little bit better. It helps us to see. What story do I think I'm in? What story do I think I'm going to be in? 
we're also isolated. We're all living online. We're all just consuming stories, nonfiction and fiction all the time, whether it's Netflix or whether it's social media. So it really does help to take a step back and think to myself, what story do I think is playing out in my life? And like you said, am I just using these other stories as a cover for not dealing with something or putting too much of those stories on myself? The, the biggest reason people, people get into politics is because they don't want to deal with these other harder issues, that it's easy to have a villain to think that you're fighting against and you're the hero, whereas the real villain is death. But we don't like to go there. Oh, amen. And it occurred to me uh, when you mentioned that the stories you were using back then, uh, you used the word anecdote. And uh, the, the a- anecdote implies that this is a story drawn from real life. And I think that, I mean, your personality mileage may vary here, but I, I might issue a generalization that if you're instead relying on fantastical stories, you know, second to scripture, obviously, but if you are relying on fantastical stories, there's a bit of a separation there. You know that you're in the realm of the imagination, or you should. Uh, if you are enjoying that superhero movie, you know this isn't real but you're still almost hacking your imagination to deal, if it's a good story, to deal with themes of loss and defeat and grief and suffering and death and ultimately hope and resurrection. Whereas if you're doom scrolling, uh, if you're reading about so-and-so beat the coronavirus or so-and-so was in perfect health and yet it took them anyway, uh, your imagination is more likely being hacked when you don't know it. And maybe that's why it helped me so much uh, not to, I mean, Honestly, some of the COVID doom scenarios just haven't gotten to me. I seem to have a natural immunity there. I read the news. I'm not a skeptic about it. It is definitely a real threat. I have not been opposed to science-based rational methods of combating the spread of the thing, Uh, but I don't get too wrapped up in it. Like I'm almost, uh, it's almost a Sherlock Holmes brain addict type principle. Uh, One of my favorite, uh, at least uh, moments in the, in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original Sherlock Holmes is when Dr. Watson happens to mention to Sherlock Holmes that the earth revolves around the sun. And Sherlock Holmes says, well, thank you for telling me that. And now that I know it, I'm going to do my best to forget it. And Watson is shocked. Like, wait a minute, why would you want to forget that? It's a basic scientific fact of human existence. And Sherlock Holmes says basically something to the effect of, yes, but it doesn't help me do my work. It's a, it's a fact completely irrelevant to my work as a consulting detective. Like, you know, I'm instead studying the exact uh, nature of the ashes in the ashtray. I have to familiarize myself with all the different types of mud that you will pick up in London and its surrounding environs. Like, what does the earth revolving around the sun have to do with me? And I, I guess that's kind of my subconscious principle there. I do want to maintain basic knowledge of God's universe, but when it comes to some of the doom narratives, I, I do just tend to kind of filter them out. Uh, It doesn't have anything to do with how I live my daily life. I'm still going to wear the mask. I'm still going to go to work. If I catch it, then I'll have to deal with it then. But otherwise, I just need to keep going and I will deal with the the threat from any illness or death first with scripture. And then then secondly, by kind of training my imagination for these events uh, using fantastic stories. Yeah, I learned early on that the worst thing I can do is just exchange one fear for another. To go from fearing the virus to fearing the vaccine, to go from 
fearing uh, catching it to fearing authoritarian lockdowns and you know whatever. I don't want to get caught up in any kind of fear. Like the, there's a difference between precaution fear, but um, I, I think that's easier said than done. What any fear leads us to is this idea that God is not in charge or God does not notice me or that somehow this is out of God's control. And, you know, God is just reacting as much as we are. And so a verse we've been meditating on in our family that we've been talking about a lot in the last week or so is Psalm 139, 16, where it says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So first of all, I love the idea that God has a book of our lives and that he wrote this book before we were born. And then we see in Revelation um, that this book gets opened and our whole life gets examined. And of course, the the real book that counts is the Lamb's Book of Life. And if our name is written in there. But this whole idea in Psalm 139, that God doesn't simply know he ordained the days of my life. He wrote them down. Acts 17 says he determined the time and the place where I would live. You have to start with that when you're facing death and you're facing the specter of death in that God has ordained the days and he's ordained the details of those days. And so we don't have to fear anything that's going to happen because he's in complete control. I believe in free will too, but there's this, uh, this is the universe he created, right? He didn't have to create this universe. He created this one. A very similar verse to this is Psalm. Uh, this is a new Psalm I learned recently. Is fifty six eight says, "You yourself have recorded my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book?" So again, the sense that God sees everything that's affecting us. And another one I go to a lot. I can't remember the reference. It says, "He gently leads those who are with young." So just as a parent, I mean, that's the whole other dimension of the struggle of death of our friend Mike coming up on an anniversary of my grandmother's death just a couple of years ago, you know, death has been a very constant topic lately in our family, but the suffering that we go through, it's not unseen by God. And the details of our life are already known to him before they happen. So I take a lot of comfort in that, that God is in charge and he's, he's aware and he's, and he's near. Yeah. As do I. And in addition to that, I do, maybe it's human weakness but I do also take comfort in the stories that I grew up enjoying that deal honestly and yet often in age appropriate ways with themes like grief and suffering and death, which uh, really leads us to our second point here is that behind the word of God, fantastic stories can also help us prepare for the suffering. Nothing that I say here is meant to imply that grief or suffering are easy. They certainly weren't for me. Uh, last month going through that and obviously still going through that now. But I must say I did feel a little prepared. And obviously the the first preparation came just from being a biblical Christian. I know the reason why death is here. I know that it doesn't belong here. I know that my feelings hating death and grieving about death and suffering are valid. I also know that this is my ultimate faith and uh, fate, <laughs> unless Jesus comes back first. Seeing this happen, uh, I'm reminded of my own mortality, and so I almost welcome the perspective just a little bit uh, because it 
there is a deeper awareness that comes with this experience. I remember after that happened, I was just suddenly very aware of how often I breathe. And for a while there, you know, a few days afterwards of just realizing every, I mean, it sounds cliche. It sounds like a greeting card, but every breath is a gift. I mean, you can put that on your little decoration pillow in your guest room if you want to, but it's true. And some of those things, some of those little memes that people share, you know, come from stories and they're not all bad. They're not all kitschy. And I think even those little catchphrases help prepare me, but more so, like I said, the, the, the scriptures that had warned me about the horror of death and the permanence of death uh, apart from Christ and, and yet also gave me uh, a biblical perspective on hope and resurrection. Uh, secondly, there were, there were stories, obviously, and adaptations of scripture that rightfully presented death and suffering as a real threat. Uh, and then thirdly, lots of stories made by Christians and non-Christians alike uh, that would deal uh, rather honestly and directly uh, with themes about death and loss. Like some of the earliest Adventures and Odyssey episodes I remember would confront this. So there were characters who would lose relatives. A few years ago, I was catching up on some uh, some uh, Adventures and Odyssey episodes that I had not heard uh, that I'd missed, you know, during a, a bit of a break from keeping track of the series over the past uh, 12 or 15 years. And a main character had suddenly lost her mother. You know, this main character is like a, a young adult. And then suddenly they said, oh, um, your mother has had a heart attack. She's gone. And this three-part series for listeners ages 8 to 12, wink, wink, was literally following the procedures of, of, of the funeral and closing out her house and themes of death and loss and doubt and, and the grief. And yet also like very honest, like if I go back and listen to it now, it's going to wreck me even more. But while I was listening to it a year or so ago, I realized this is, this is a preparation. I can just tell that it is, you know, if, if not anytime soon, then for the future. And obviously the writer of that three-part episode had gone through this. It just felt so authentic. And I remembered enough of helping my mom close out my great grandmother's house after she died in the late nineties that I could tell it was authentic. Even when I was growing up, though, I mean, this was a year or so ago when I heard that. But, you know, there were there were earlier episodes that also dealt with uh, death and loss. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, there's there's death all throughout. You know, Aslan obviously uh, dies, uh, but probably actually the most significant death in the book is that of uh, Caspian, King Caspian at the end of the silver chair. And you actually follow his body into the afterlife where Aslan, spoiler alert, brings him back to life it's it's like a it's like a resurrection resurrection works a little differently in narnia obviously that may be one of my favorite scenes in the chronicles is just getting a getting a glimpse behind the veil of what that could look like it's timeless perfection what c.s lewis did and despite his own rhetoric sometimes i think he had a very high view of resurrection and a very biblical one switching over to the more secular side it would seem the Harry Potter series rather infamously had a, a character death at the end of book four or movie four, uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And J.K. Rowling does not draw back from themes of death and loss. Like I remember even some early controversy. Like, hey, these books are supposed to be for kids. And she's like, yes. And the kids need to know that death and suffering is real and that grief is real. And you can't lighten that up uh, by saying, oh, well, it's a it's a magic world. Like. Even the ghosts in the Harry Potter book series 
admit that death is final and permanent. Some of the better superhero and fantastical tales also treat death seriously. Uh, fans grieved at the uh, at this uh, the rather significant point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Spoiler alert: At the end of Avengers Endgame, Tony Stark surrenders his life, uh, not just to avenge against the enemies, uh, but also to uh, save his friends, you know, save the entire universe, basically. And they spend time in the grieving process at the end. You see Tony Stark's funeral, you know, just like at the start of the film, you see five years of grief in uh, on planet Earth anyway, after everyone's been snapped away at the uh, at the end of the last film. Of course, I've, I've mentioned Zack Snyder's Justice League, which just came out on March the 18th. And at long last, you see a far weightier presentation of the consequence of, spoiler alert again, uh, Superman's sacrifice at the end of Batman v Superman. Uh, there is a theatrical version of Justice League. We've gone over all that stuff. You can listen to that episode from back in May 2020. But in this case, the story is far more serious about the fallout of Superman's death. And, you know, Lois, is, uh, Lois Lane is grieving and then way more serious about the hope and the wonder about what happens, say, if Superman gets to come back to life, he has a second chance. He finally snaps out of his, uh, you know, initial uh, shock of that experience. And then basically he's ready to be a hero again, having gotten that second chance. And I just, I hadn't seen the movie at the time. I literally saw the movie in between my, my the day of my dad's death and his funeral. Uh, I just had to grab it at some point for a break, but it was a way more cathartic experience than I thought it would be because you feel, at least I felt the reality of death, the, the seriousness of it and the suffering and the threat of it. Uh, but then you also got just as much robust celebration of a character's resurrection. And so in that case, you, you felt that hope of resurrection more seriously because they seem to take the idea of a character death more seriously you know, rather than just, Oh, well, you know, so-and-so went and died off screen and then, oh, oh, he's back again for the sequel. Hey, what do you know? Death isn't permanent. And the best stories don't treat death as just some sort of temporary intrusion. And we'll get to the resurrection stuff in our final section here. Finally, I mean, I did feel more like I'd prepared for this a little bit because uh, about a little over 10, 12 years ago, I actually wrote a novel manuscript that kind of explored these themes. There was a funeral, there was a death of a close friend, uh, there was a, there's a, a elderly Christian man who was kind of fearing his own uh, death in that manuscript, and then there was also promises of resurrection and the wonderful world to come. So it just, it does help, even if you're not a writer, even if you're just a fan of these kinds of stories, to start looking for those reflections, to start training, to start thinking about them. And I think maybe even some of the children's stories that deal honestly with death and grief can be very helpful. The earlier you start, probably the better. You know, there is something a lot more satisfying about Tony Stark's death in the end of Avengers Endgame than his sort of fake death at the end of the first Avengers, where he uh, was, there's like a nuclear missile that shot at New York and he grabs it and throws it in the portal and then falls all the way back to the earth and hits the ground, but somehow Jarvis restarts his heart. I'm, I'm like, okay, the guy just fell like thousands of feet. Even if he's in this super suit, I mean, come on, like it, the inside of him would be jelly. <laughs> but from that kind of impact, I, there's not enough shock absorbers in something that thin. So 
of course it's like the first Avengers are like, yay, everyone's still alive and they defeated the bad guys, but eh, that's not, I mean, okay. Yes. It's a fantastic story. So you can't get too persnickety about how unreal it is, but there's still part of you that's like, eh, I don't really buy that. And that's not really, um, it, it doesn't really speak to the actual pain and suffering in the world of the reality of death. And so Avengers Endgame, I felt like it really honors the experience a lot of us have had where someone's body simply cannot defeat whatever it is that has ended their life. You know, with our own story recently of Mike's passing, again, we we just, his kids are the same age as our kids. He was a little bit older than me, but still so much life left to live. And obviously his kids are still, still growing up. And, um, I thought back to the Lamb Among the Stars series where there is, and not even halfway through that series, there is a beloved character that dies quite suddenly. And it seemed like there was a lot left to that character's story. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it because I, I want everyone to read those books. But that really shocked me. I thought, surely not. Surely there's going to be something that happens and this person comes back and, Oh, it's like Tony Stark. Like, Oh, you know, there's some miracle that happens and uh, they're fine, but that doesn't happen. That character stays dead. And this happened a lot in the left behind series. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Good. Because, the, because Jared Jenkins wrote a, wrote it. So seat of the pants, you know, his only outline was Tim LaHaye's prophecy charts, you know, and otherwise uh, at least so far, Per his own uh, uh, discussion about it, like uh, Jerry B. Jenkins, the the actual fiction author of the series, would just would just pants it. You know, as authors say, he he would just kind of find out what characters were doing, and then oh, suddenly oh, someone died. Like oh, well, I guess we got to deal with that now. And yeah, it, it could seem to cheapen it a bit, but the arbitrariness of it, I think, ultimately kind of worked. Is is that where you were going right. with that? Yeah, I was thinking of Bruce, the pastor that dies in like. Second or third book? Second, yeah. Um, and they the spend second, most yeah. of the third book with the fallout of that. Uh, a, a, right. a fallout that is much less available as the series progresses. You know, if you're waiting for the next plague from the skies, then you don't have a whole lot of time for memorial services like you did at the end of book two. There were a number of other characters that died later in the books, but they did not have as much of impact on me as Bruce's death and how there was sort of an ambiguousness to it. Um, I, I they think Nikolai poisoned him or something, right? And but oh, they, that's right. Yeah, you got into some, you got into some kind of drama shtick there, just a little bit. Like, oh no, she's died, but you know, maybe she was actually a double agent all along. And you know, right. there were a few deaths, and then you would come back, and you know, it, it's all in good fun, but it it did kind of blend with the more serious death presentations, so, so that maybe the 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 shock of it could be blunted here and there. Well, especially because it was a sickness that came on suddenly and. Then it was over pretty quickly. I appreciate how the author is honoring the real life scenario that so many of us go through of just losing someone suddenly and horribly. Um, in my mom's neighborhood during the Texas winter storm, there was a gentleman that died in his in his bed from hypothermia. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, and I I know another person that lost their uh, grandmother same way you know, sometimes death is just cruel and it sneaks up on you and you don't see it coming. And so I, I think stories that 
that honor that are very important because we get to see, hey, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that's faced this. And there is a way through it. And part of that way is just the the empathy of others that know what that is like. Because I think what death tricks us into thinking is you're all alone. Uh, you know, you're you're alone to face this in the dark and uh, you'll never get over it. Not not that we necessarily get over the death of a loved one. I mean, my grandfather passed away almost 20 years ago. I still have dreams about him. Wow. I think about him all the time. Yeah, the so, dreams are terrible, aren't they? They really are. There's always some sudden reversal. Oh, there's been some mistake. I had one of those a week or so ago, but it was one of those lucid dreams. I was aware that this was a dream and I was able to start trying to control the narrative a little bit, you know, before the whole thing dissolved. You know, it was a very low budget dream. Uh, you can tell that the walls are just made out of balsa wood and, you know, it's a very hasty set dressing. And you have to move quickly once you realize that, oh, oh, this is a dream, isn't it? You know, or else they'll just take the whole thing apart out from under you. Oh, yeah. I, I've definitely had that experience with uh, dreams about pops where I'm like, wait a minute, he didn't come back. He's he's still dead. But I think that this happens because we naturally reject death. Like there's this saying a right. lot, oh, death is part of life. It's the natural process. That's humanism. No, yeah. I, no, I reject I it. reject. I totally reject that because God created a world without death. And when Jesus comes back, he will eliminate death. Death is not part of the blueprint of our universe. It isn't, like you said, it's an invader and it will be defeated. And it's already partially been defeated. I love John 11, 25, where Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never die. We're never really going to die, even though we die in this body, we die in this life because he will bring us back to life. And so, yeah, we we can't just focus on death and and get stuck there, that that is not the end. It It is an end, but not the end, but it is still a pretty final end. I mean, I'm not going to see Mike, uh, I'm not going to see pops until the resurrection. And so stories help us to kind of process that to help us go, yeah, this, this really happened. Right. Um, I'll tell you another kind of death though, that I, I don't see a lot of stories about it's ambiguous death or ambiguous loss. This is a term that we, I was at a conference a couple of years ago and there were, there were two prominent stories. One was about this family whose son uh, was in a terrible accident in a football game. And, and he has basically been changed for life. He's lost a lot of his mental and physical function. He's still alive. He, he can still interact, but he's just a totally different person now. So the, the person that he was is gone. And, and now he's almost like this new person that they have to take a lot more care of. Another story that happened was, so there was this family of six in Alaska and the father and two of the children got on a a private plane uh, to go somewhere and the plane never arrived where it was supposed to go and they never found it. They never found it. They found their bodies. Wow. I hate that. I hate that so much because that messes with my sense of we need closure. We need finality. We need the plot details to be resolved. I don't want any plot holes left. But death will just cut in and then just leave plot holes everywhere. Uh, the, I guess that's the detriment of stories that take death seriously is they almost always move toward a significant character death right on time. 
you know, even if you don't see yeah. it coming in retrospect, you look back and you go, well, he or she fulfilled his or her purpose in this story. You know, that not that there was nothing left for them to do, but you just feel that, okay, it was that character's time. It was in a sense, right for Tony Stark to die at that time. There was nothing that Superman could have done. He, at his point in his arc in the, in the, in that series, it was good for him to die, especially if we know that in Superman's case, he's coming back for the next movie, even if it's delayed by about five years. But that's just not the case in real life where death is arbitrary and it just it, it cuts it cuts across. It's rude. It is just so rude. Uh, the interesting thing about that story of that Alaskan family is our friend Mike was really good friends with them. Oh, wow. And so after that happened, he he did everything he could to help them. And and I've heard this, that it's so much harder for people to lose a loved one when there's no body for the casket. Because then it's like your mind can't really make sense of it. Like it's already hard to see a person you've loved in a casket, but then to not even have that. And so th- this is a topic I become very interested in. I'm, I'm writing something about, but even more, I reject the idea that death is natural. Th- this is not natural. No, uh, th- this is not what God intended. He, he will make all things right. But I, I think there is an angst that gets into us. There's an anger at this. There's a, this is not fair. And I, I think that is entirely a healthy emotion. It's not, and I'm not talking about denial. I think denial is usually like that first stage of grief and anger is another one and bargaining and all this kind of stuff. But there is, um, there is a deep sense of wrongness that we shouldn't gloss over. I, I think if anything, it just makes me pray, like, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because this is wrong. Like this, not only this situation, but that this happens everywhere. This is a wrong feature of the world. It's, it's not a fear. It's not a feature. It's a bug. And, you know, we want Jesus to come fix it. And so we have to keep asking for him to fix it and to hasten his return. Right. You know, it occurs to me also that even the stories that do maybe treat a character death as overly meaningful, there's still an advantage there because it's almost like they're skipping to the end. We know that when Christ returns and makes all things new for those who are in Christ, every death of a saint will be meaningful. It is not meaningless. I have to take faith in that, that every death has meaning in God's plot line. The scripture says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And of course, that is a verse that's been repeated at many funerals and memorials and bedsides, and rightfully so. This is precious, even though it looks completely ugly, because we live in the hope from scripture that it is going to make sense. It's going to be meaningful someday. And I think even the the secular perversion of that is at least close to the truth when they say, well, you know, death is a natural part. You know, we live, we die. That's the circle of life. You know, it, it errs on the side of treating death like it somehow belongs here. But even that is a an attempt to cope with death by acting like it's meaningful. It's just part of the human drama. Everybody's got to do it. You know, it, it, it's Stockholm it's, syndrome. Yeah, well, a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome, but you can at least see that someone is trying to make meaning out of it. And I would take even that, uh, not a close second to the biblical worldview, but as a feasible, meaningful worldview, like I would be tempted to accept that even above the worst response to death, which I think is the flippancy about it. 
a, a meaningless character death or a death that isn't really permanent in a story like that cheapens the whole affair. Uh, that almost seems to mock the story participant uh, by acting like the character death isn't meaningful uh, because it can just be reversed a few episodes later. You know, so-and-so didn't really die, you know, or, you know, he went to Hades and came back, you know, just depending on how supernatural you want to go with that. But there's also, there's, there's a kitsch element to death as well. And I couldn't help but notice that even just, you know, I'm just going to go here, uh, seeing some of the, uh, the funeral kitsch that's available, like kitschy products, you know, needlepoint along the, you know, the inside of the casket or some of the cliches and such. Like I, I, I at once want to sympathize with someone who finds comfort in that and some of the trappings of the ceremony. Uh, or some of the even even some of the, the, the lame uh, semi-Christian sentiments, you know, oh, he's he's in a better place. You know, he's watching us from above, you know, some of that stuff. We may need to link, by the way, in the show notes. Uh, Peter Franson, our friend at the Christian Geek Central, had a really great video about this, uh, the, the cliches about death and some of the kitschy, flippant responses to death uh, after after the uh, the death of Leonard Nimoy, who played, uh, of course, Spock in the original uh, Star Trek uh, series of television and films. Like I, I, I still remember uh, Pater's excellent exploration, like with biblical truth, yet also fan sensitivity toward some of the things that we would say about someone like uh, particularly with Leonard Nimoy, a lot of fans were saying, Oh, he he's among the stars. Like, no, he's not. No, he's not among the stars. That was a TV show. This is a real person, and that was a real death. It just seems like a way to dress up death and kind of try the same thing that I mentioned earlier. It's a self-distraction. We kind of join this collective delusion that death is not serious and that it is not rude and it's not offensive. Uh, we make it into some kind of little hokey thing as a survival tactic. So at once I get it, but I also believe we've got to challenge that as Christians. We need to avoid that kind of flippant or kitschy approach to death and grieve for real and yet still maintain that gospel-based hope. So I was telling one of my daughters recently about how I grew up with all of the awesome 1990s action movies, um, just the, all the over-the-top shoot-em-up movies like the John Woo kind of movies like Face Off or Mission Impossible 2 or any Schwarzenegger or Stallone movie. Like I, I saw them all. And, uh, you know, it, it really desensitized me to this idea that, oh, death is permanent, at least until Christ's return. Probably the most, uh, flippant example would be South Park where, uh, this is not a spoiler, but every single episode, Kenny, uh, the character dies in some horrible way. And of course it's a little cartoon, so it's, you know, it's only as bloody as you can draw it, but every episode he dies next episode, he's back and there's no explanation. I don't get it. I have to say, I don't get it. I like dark humor, but I don't get that. Yeah, it, it's, and they haven't really moved past that denial stage, you know, that first stage of grief. But what flipped this for me was, uh, I guess this was my senior year of high school. I saw Saving Private Ryan. And boy, like that was intense. Seeing this very brutal portrayal of what the invasion of Normandy looked like. There was no attempt to glorify it with awesome music or slow-mo or, you know, catchy lines. It was just a guy would be there one second and the next second his head is blown off. 
a bomb hits them or a bullet hits them. And just, it's like you said, it just, death is rude. It just keeps invading and doing whatever it wants. And that really shocked me out of my love, you know, my sort of my pre-Christian love for these kind of action movies. And I, I went through a phase after that where I'm like, I don't want to watch any movies like that again, because th- this was giving me a completely backwards view of death. And so I think sometimes, like you said, we, we have to look out for the idols in movies and we have to re- reject those stories that numb us to reality and, and sort of transport us to this fantastical world within the real world where we, we don't see things as they really are anymore. Well, and that, that reminded me just now of Rogue One and what it was I really oh, liked about Rogue One. Yes, I loved that about Rogue One. Very bold choice. Okay, so spoiler alert, if you've not seen Rogue One, hit the skip because I'm going to drop a huge spoiler here. But everyone dies in Rogue One. All of the heroes die in all different ways. And it is, man, I was not prepared for that going in. That was not the Star Wars I thought I was going to get, right? But, but there was one very particular death that I think gives a lot of perspective. And it's, um, I, I can't remember his name. I'm so bad with character names. It's the guy that kept saying, I'm one with the force and the force is with me. Chira Demway. And kind of. That's either the actor or the character name I'm trying to remember now. Yeah. You know, he walks through this whole barrage of bullets to perform this task and he doesn't die until his task is complete. Okay. You could look at that. You could look, well, that's kind of some weird Buddhism thing or, or whatever, or it's plot armor. You know, you could deconstruct it in that way if you want, which, okay. I think the better perspective that gives me is that is what a lot of people will say is that God will not allow someone to die until their work is complete. Right. And it goes back to Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book. So I really like that aspect of the movie that it doesn't try to cheapen sacrifice, like heroic sacrifice. Um, It doesn't just have them get rescued at the last minute by some Deus Machina, like, they all pay the price, but also they, that one character knows, Hey, this is, this is what the force willed, you know? And I, and I think that's, that's the right perspective with in, in the real world is that God has ordained our days and, and we have to trust that. And, and he's ordained the days of others that have already gone. Or to briefly deconstruct that the force has no morals and no will. I'm not <laughs> sure how he can say that the force is as the force wills it. The force has no mind. Therefore, the force has no will. The force, I'll take it. I'll take it just as a reminder that there are mysterious things in the universe, but the Christian knows that God does have a will and his will is good and perfect. And I do take comfort in that phrase that until your purpose on earth that God has assigned to you is complete, you are functionally immortal. So at least you will be immune to death until God decides it's your time. And yet I also find the phrase a little bit frustrating because, well, like in the case of my dad, like, wait a minute. No, you weren't done. You weren't, you weren't done here. Like I can see multiple different things that should be done that weren't. And that's, that's just how it's got to be. And eventually I'll see how actually uh, his, his purpose was done, but it's very difficult to see from here. Well, now that we've explored how scripture and stories can help us face death with a good perspective. What are some stories that help us long for resurrection and have a clear perspective of that? 
so many stories that I can think of, probably many more that you can think of as well. But at least speaking from my recent experience in the past month, it's more been a lot of stories that I've had at the back of my imagination that have helped shape the longing for resurrection. The knowledge that all of this, as permanent as it could feel now, is is temporary. Uh, it will eventually vanish away uh, in the weight of glory. I've already mentioned uh, the Zack Snyder's Justice League. There is so much hope, more than I knew, uh, in that film. This is the real version of the movie, four hours long, famously so. But there is just there's a lot more resurrection in that than I even knew. Uh, in the theatrical version, gotta say. Uh, it was treated very flippantly. Oh, well, Hero X is back from the dead. Yeah, you know, and he literally is asked at one point, what did it feel like you know, being dead? And he says, itchy. And that is just absolutely loathsome. In this version, there's there's no mention of where he's gone in between. You know, it could be a very humanist view of death, but at least on this side, you know, the sun is shining, there are butterflies, there's nature, you know, it's a, it's a new opportunity, it's a new beginning. The whole story is about rebirth. I would not have been able to appreciate that if they had not already gone to such a dark place with death and showing the violence and the brutality of it and the meaningfulness of the sacrifice uh, at the end of the last film. Uh, but if, if they hadn't gone there into the darkness, into that sense of despair tinged with hope, uh, the hope would not have been so meaningful in the story as it was. And I do, I do appreciate stories like that. Like, I'm not going to be a legalist against stories that are more flippant about death or 90s action movies or, you know, cartoons where Wile E. Coyote falls off a cliff. And then in the, you know, after a fade to black, he's perfectly fine and normally shaped. But stories like that just don't help as much when you're dealing with these kinds of realities. And they certainly don't help you to expect and long for resurrection. Uh, in Justice League, when Superman, I'll just name it, <laughs> rises again, you do feel the weight of the wonder. Like, wow, he's back from the dead. Anything could happen now. Uh, the same thing happens in the other stories that show the the uh, meaningfulness, yet also the rudeness of death. Uh, but then they show the glory of the resurrection. You know, Gandalf returns is literally a resurrection. Uh, obviously, Aslan, of course, a very famous resurrection in his first story in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, at the end of the Harry Potter series, of course, uh, Harry Potter, like probably the most drawn out uh, reenactment of Christ's sacrifice. There's a Via, Via Dolorosa and everything, you know, and then Harry Potter surrenders himself for his friends and then uh, goes to a kind of afterlife and then returns and is able to participate and lead uh, the defeat of evil and save not only Hogwarts, but the whole wizarding world. Like, it's still very meaningful there. And you, you feel the wonder of, oh, wow, this, this hero has come back and, and now all will be set right and we can draw this vast, fantastic narrative to a close. I'm glad that those stories don't treat resurrection as uh, as flippantly as others. Like I, I think that the Marvel films do get unfairly criticized for being flippant about character deaths. Agent Phil Coulson dies and is a meaningful death, but also a rude yeah. death at the uh, near the end of uh, the first Avengers film. And uh, I've had a lot of uh, criticism of Joss Whedon on the, on the recent Fantastical Truth episodes, but I would view that as a meaningful death. And then even when they brought him back for his own series, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the first season 
spent so much time assuming that Coulson was back from the dead somehow. Uh, but eventually that, at least that first season, it wasn't so much trying to explain why he was back from the dead, but trying to grapple with the implications of that. Uh, WandaVision just wrapped up on Disney Plus, and there's there's some pretty profound explorations of the seriousness of death, like even of a synthesoid, but also what happens when someone is grieving. You know, what can someone do that is not healthy in response to the the passing of a loved one? But if stories seriously show the consequences of suffering and death, then yeah, the the resurrection hits harder in a good way, and I think, at least in my case, it seems to have been helping to train my imagination to think it's real because the story obviously doesn't get very close to replicating the real life death experience. Like there's nothing compared to what happens if a loved one dies in real life, but if it can at least go partly in that direction, uh, it's, it's almost a good kind of bluff. It does help, I think, to shape the expectations. Okay. I have in a sense been here before. This beloved character, this hero has died and it was terrible and it was serious. But if they came back, then maybe, maybe I have a placeholder in my imagination to expect that this real person is going to come back. Jesus himself is going to raise this person to life. I think that by the way, the symbols help too, Zach. Like I, I learned uh, if I, if I knew it before I'd forgotten, but I learned that at least with some cemeteries, and at least in uh, in in Western cultures, they do bury people facing the east. If they're still burying people at mm. all, they're not just doing the cremation, which is an, it's an increasing trend. People are just being cremated for the economy of it and maybe a different sort of view of the human body. But if you go in the ground in a cemetery, they'll face you toward the east, apparently, which is because, of course, the scriptures mentioning that Christ returns and you'll see him in the east. And I'm reminded, of course, that Aslan also comes to Narnia from the east. If you sail eastward, then you just might reach Aslan's country. Gandalf in the Two Towers, at least the film version, promises that he's going to arrive just in the nick of time. At the dawn, look to the east. And then you see him appear on that hill with the white horse and the sunrise and everything. And it is absolutely epic. It is a resurrection type yeah. moment, even after Gandalf has come back to life. That really helps me. Just having those images in my mind and the music and the symbols and all of those things, just, they don't make it, I, well, I don't know. They might make it a little easier. I don't know. I don't have a point of comparison. I can't imagine what it's like to deal with death without having that biblical context for it or that biblical hope for the resurrection of the deceased if they were a believer. Um, I guess the stories could help a little bit, but it's kind of a one-two punch. You've got the truth from the gospel, and then you also have the uh, the, the supporting choir uh, from these fantastic stories, some made by Christians and others made by non-Christians who just happen to capture uh, some pretty eternal realities there. Let me go to some positive examples. The Wheel of Time, uh, there are two beloved characters that die or that that go missing. So it's more like that ambiguous death or ambiguous loss. One of those characters gets rescued and comes back several books later. And that is an amazing, amazing moment. You really miss this character in the interim and you're so glad that she's back. 
this is sort of in between, but in Star Trek Next Generation, Tasha Yar dies like tragically, suddenly in what, season two or uh, season, season one? one. Yeah, I think it was barely yeah. halfway through season one because the, the actress wanted off. <laughs> right. She, she did. It was Denise Crosby. Uh, I'm not sure that she felt that it was uh, something she wanted to have signed up for. So, uh, yeah, they just they roll the whole story just to just to get rid of her character that quickly. So there's a story Dude, about the arbitrary rudeness of death. Just right. Boom. Out of nowhere. She wasn't even wearing a red shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then they bring her back uh, several times through sort of alternate timelines or, um, you know, like alternate universes where she never died, but then she sort of becomes aware that she was supposed to have died. And yeah, it's in yesterday's enterprise. Yeah. Sacrifices herself. So that that's a very interesting series. Um, the last two I want to talk about are the movie Oblivion with Tom Cruise. Dude, I love Tom Cruise movies. Not going to apologize. This is a great movie because the villain in it is a a perfect representation of the devil that deceives the whole world. Uh, it's a really great portrayal of that. And then he he dies uh, in a in a sacrificial way, but then there's sort of this clone of him that survives and is reunited with his his loved ones and his friends and. It's not quite the same person, right? But it's, but it, but it sort of is, and so it's a really great resurrection at the end, and it's not a cheap one either. Like it makes sense within the story. Um, the last one I want to talk about is this short film called Most, and it means the bridge. And this was a short film that was made in two thousand three. Really fun story. Uh, story about this. So this was written by. Producer Billy Zabka, who, if you're a fan of Karate Kid or Cobra Kai, he's Johnny, <laughs> you know, sweep the leg, Johnny. And so he was um, told this story at like a youth camp of, it's the bridge master analogy, okay? So this short film is about father and a son, and they meet this young woman at a train station, and she seems to have a drug problem, and she's running away. And then the father and son, his job is working this drawbridge. And so later in that day, that woman's train is coming towards the drawbridge and it's up. And so he needs to put the bridge down, except his son has fallen into the, the gear shaft. And so he has, it's like the trolley problem. He has to decide, well, do I, do I pull the lever and save everyone in the train or, or not and save my son? And he decides to pull the lever. Uh, and try to rescue his son, but his son dies, but the train makes it across. And right at the moment where he finds his son dead, he sees the woman on the train and she sees him and they're all oblivious to what just happened except for her. And she's like, wait a minute, I just saw them earlier. Then fast forward to the end of the film, he sees her years later and she has a son and, and she's, you know, cleaned up her life or whatever. And so it's, it's a really interesting picture of resurrection. Of course, the, the bridge, if you're familiar with the bridge master analogy, it's not quite a great ana- a metaphor for substitutionary atonement or, or whatever, because, you know, the son doesn't really choose to die. Like Jesus resolutely sat out for Jerusalem and chose to die on the cross. But nonetheless, it's a great story. It's a great picture. And the resurrection at the end, it's, again, it's not quite the same son comes back, but it, it's like a functional resurrection. And hey, I'll take it. I'll 
I'll take a story like that, that gives that hope that echo and that even a pale reflection of that hope of resurrection is still an encouraging thing. Right. It's better than the flippancy and it's certainly better than something that just treats death as a natural part of life. Uh, if, if you at least get a hint that, well, someone is going to move on or there's going to be some meaning to the sacrifice, I'll take it. But how much more so then is the scriptural narrative, the gospel truth, wonderful that God himself makes every death of his saints meaningful. He is writing the story with a capital S, the true story. And someday it will all make sense. We'll be able to start filling in those plot holes and finding the connections and understanding why God wrote the books of everyone's lives just as he chose to write them. Well, my final thought is First Thessalonians 4.13. It says, we don't grieve like those without hope. Now, a lot of people just stop with this first part. We don't grieve. And, and that's not true either. You know, we do grieve, but we, we don't grieve hopelessly. We have hope. We, we talked about this a lot after Mike's funeral that the reality is we're going to grieve and, and, and it can last a long time and it can sneak up on you, but we do have hope. And so we live in that tension of, of grief and hope and both are real at the same time. And it seems like a contradiction, but man, that is the, uh, that is the craziness of living in this yes and not yet kingdom that we live in this almost, but not quite kingdom that has come and the kingdom that is coming. Well, next we have a feedback from a fantastic fan regarding episode 56. Brenda wrote us a note about this episode that Zach helmed along with uh, guest star Elizabeth Wheatley about strong female characters. You want to read that for us, Zach? Yeah, Brenda says, quote, I recently went on a deep dive into scripture about biblical attributes of men and women. Fellow writer bases most of her understanding of gender roles and expectations on tropes. This is pretty foreign to me, so I went searching through the word. Found five things that are consistent in how the Bible depicts women. One, introspective. Two, intuitive. Three, compassionate. Four, resourceful. Five, brave. None of these attributes have anything to do with meeting a beauty standard, wearing the right outfit, or conforming to the expectations of any given society. These were things I found in both good characters and evil ones in the Bible. Though what I noticed with the evil women in the Bible is that usually they emphasize one aspect and have a deficiency in another. Jezebel, for example, uses her intuition and resourcefulness to manipulate, deceive, and destroy others at the expense of her compassion. End quote. Well, thank you so much, Brenda. That is a really insightful uh, research you did. So um, thank you so much for writing us and thank you for listening. And to you, our listener, we would love to hear your feedback on this episode about death and resurrection and stories that have helped you process these ideas and these realities. So email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. Or if you want to click on the episode webpage, you can leave a comment at the bottom. You can also follow us at lorehaven on Twitter. Or follow our recently refreshed Instagram account at Lorehaven Mag. We're having some great content there. It definitely helps to have the events going. Now there's stuff to actually take video of. You can see things happening in the world. It's not just all on your computer screen. And it's wonderful to add that real life aspect to what Lorehaven does and the readers that we're hoping to reach. 
Next on Fantastical Truth. Well, I just got back from my grief-related hiatus and then also that trip to St. Louis with the Realmakers Bookstore in Lorehaven. So we're still planning our next round of Fantastical Truth episodes. So we're open to hearing what you would like to hear next, but upcoming topics include most likely uh, the glories that help ground the heroes of, here it is again, Zack Snyder's Justice League, the unprecedented uh, return to the original director's version for this movie that just released uh, exclusively streaming to HBO Max. We may have a friend or two to talk about that. I also couldn't help but notice that there was a lot of discussion lately about the Mark of the Beast and what the Mark of the Beast is from the book of Revelation. Notice I said revelation, singular. It's not revelations. It's revelation, (laughs) he said in the voice of Hermione Granger. It's true, and it's also true that Christians have had many different little conflicts about what exactly is the Mark of the Beast. What in the world does 666 mean? If we can find just the right guest, most likely, to help us explore this topic with firmness and yet also grace and truth, then we will have on this person and delve as deep as we dare to go into that topic. Meanwhile, if you are dealing with death in your family or friends, suffering grief related to COVID or any other illness within the recent past, we wish we could pray with you. We hope that this episode has been an encouragement to you, or maybe this hasn't happened to you recently as it has happened to us. Uh, Perhaps it's just the the haunting of death and the suspicion correctly that it's ahead for you and just the daily suffering and grief that we deal with as humans living in a fallen world. If that's you, and I know it is, then we do hope this episode has encouraged you and we hope that you will look first to scripture to define the darkness of death, but also the hope of the light of Christ's resurrection. And then also look for the reflections of that light in the stories and songs that we enjoy, fantastical and otherwise as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.